Thank you, Don, for leading us in those songs. Well, we've had a chance this morning to sing together, to experience what it means to be the body of Christ in fellowship, to pray to God. And now's that part of our worship where we transition from communing with God and celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to now hearing from God, allowing him to be our teacher. I've selected a passage for you. This is a a New Year's reading that we will do from the book of Romans. And so we put that on the screen so that you have a moment to find this passage in your Bible, or if you brought it in electronic form to be able to find that. The letter of Romans you'll find in your New Testament that's in that second or that last third of your Bible. This is the first letter. After the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see a historical letter of Acts, and then after that is this letter that was written by Paul to a church just like this. But this church that this letter was first written to was in Rome. And the letter that you read there was preserved so that you and I here in Anchorage, Alaska, could read this very same letter written first to those Christians in Rome, but the message is for us. And the passage this morning will come from Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And if you're able, would you be willing to stand for the reading of God's word? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions Do not present the members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. May God bless the reading of his word. Be seated as we think through the message that is brought to us here. We're going into a new year. As of tonight at midnight, we'll hit that point around the sun where a new year starts. I hope you've already been practicing saying 2024 and writing 2024. That will be hard for a few weeks, I'm sure. But what's going to happen this year for you? 
As you look out over the horizon, I'm sure you have plans, goals, maybe some resolutions. There are destinations that come to mind, certain degrees, new jobs, new places to live. But do you really know what's going to happen in 2024? You realize by the end of 2024, you'll be able to look back and see what has happened. But as of right now, you don't really know what's going to happen. There are way too many unknowns. By the end of 2024, we will know then which states experienced a natural disaster. We'll know by the end of 2024 what new diseases are circulating around the world. We'll know by the end of 2024 which of you have new jobs and which of you will have lost your jobs. By the end of 2024, some of you unexpectedly will have received very bad news, and this will be a hard year. For others of you, by the end of 2024, you'll look back and recognize that you unexpectedly had received very good news. And you'll remember 2024 is a a great year. But as you look out over 2024, you don't really know what's going to happen. There are too many variables. There's no way for us to predict really beyond what's going to happen today or tomorrow. This will sound like a really cheap shot, but you realize all of life is kind of like trying to predict the weather. You realize how accurate that's been this winter. Has your house been like ours? A few weeks ago, we got to the point where we would look at at tomorrow's forecast and we would make plans based on the exact opposite of what they said was going to happen. You know, if they called for trace amounts of snow, we pulled out the snow shovels. (laughs) And if they called for six to eight inches, we said, eh, it's not going to be a problem. (laughs) Well, tomorrow will go well. It's really hard to predict the weather. I had a friend named Jim Green. Some of you know Jim and Shannon Green. They live in Haines. Jim, years ago, told me, He said, do you realize that if you were to say that tomorrow the weather will be very much like it was today, you would be right as often as a meteorologist is about the weather tomorrow. Now, that was about 30 years ago, you know, when he told me that. But it turns out it's true that if you try to predict the weather, even out to 10 days, you're only about 50% accurate. And so there's the joke you've heard that this is true of all of life, not just for meteorologists or weather persons. But the joke is that Whether you talk about a weather person, a physician, or your preacher, they share this in common. They do a pretty good job of telling you what God has done, but they have a very difficult time telling you what God is going to do tomorrow. Because it's hard to predict. The future is, we like to think, something that we look into with open eyes, able to know what's going to happen. As if this is the past and this is the future. We imagine ourselves walking forward into the future with open eyes and being able to plan what will happen. But the reality is that the future is covered by this veil, this dark curtain that we call the future. And we don't really know what's going to happen. In reality, we move into the future going backwards. And in the ancient world, they knew this. In fact, they would describe this somewhat as a concept. Instead of thinking of looking forward into the future, they would think of moving into the future going backwards. The image is that of a a person sitting on a train with their back to the engine, you know, moving backwards so that you can see very clearly what has happened in the past. 
and you might be able to see what's happening beside you, but you can't really see what's down the tracks or sitting with your back to the bow of a boat moving upriver. The idea is you can see what you have passed, but it's really hard to see what's coming or sitting like a flight attendant on an airplane, you know, with your back. You get the point. We are moving into the future as if we are backing into the future. And in the ancient world, they understood this. And so when in the ancient world, when you made predictions or comments about what was going to come in the future, you always spoke about it in language that assumed that what you could see clearly is what's in the past. And that's what you make your decisions on. So if we were to ask the Apostle Paul for this church, for those of us as individuals in our families, if we were to ask, What should be our expectation? What should be our goals? What should be our resolution in 2024? You would get a passage very much like the one that we read here. And if you understand this idea of confidently moving into the future backwards by looking into the past, this passage will come to life, and you'll understand what Paul is saying. Paul begins our passage today there in chapter 6, verse 1, by asking a question. He says, What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning? Shall we go on making errors or doing the wrong things so that grace may abound? Now, what would make that question a legitimate question? I think all of you intuitively would say, no, we should not continue to sin in the year to come so that God's grace may. Why would he even ask that question? Well, the first thing that we need to get straight is why he would ask that question. And to understand that, you have to recognize that this letter of Romans is, in fact, a full letter. And that chapter 6 of Romans is actually there because of chapter 5. And chapter 5 is based on chapter 4. And chapter 4 is based on chapter 3 and 3 on 2 and 2 on 1. And so to really understand why the writer of this letter would say anything, it's important to read the whole letter. I hope you will take time to do that. But if we were to do a quick overview of this letter of Romans, go all the way back, so sort of rewind the tape to Romans chapter 1. In chapter 1, the scene is set that recognizes that every culture anywhere in the world uh, has a problem. And Paul calls this problem a fatal trade in which the truth of God is traded for what he calls a lie. It's where people in every culture have traded the glory of God. In other words, the the fact that they bear the image of God, they've traded that for false images of what is to be sought, images that look like people or animals, this trading of truth for something false, where we reach for something thinking this is what life is really about, but it's our grasping for that life, almost like Eve grasping for that fruit on a tree, And Paul calls that a fatal trade. And he says that every culture, doesn't matter which one, every culture that makes that fatal trade has several characteristics, things about that culture that become obvious. The first is that people will do things to and with their bodies that, ironically, are dishonoring to their bodies and are totally unnatural. And not only that, But God gives people over to what's called an untested mind. People start doing things and saying things, believing things, and even promoting ideas that are totally irrational and are actually destructive to themselves and to others in the community. And Paul says that's true of every every culture. 
And then when you turn over to chapter 2, Paul says, that's not just true of you. That's true of, or not just true of somebody else. That's also true of you. Paul here writing, he says, it doesn't matter if you are a Jewish person who has a law, a list of things that say this is right and this is wrong, or if you are not a Jew and those very same laws are written inside, you know what is right and wrong. Paul says it doesn't matter. Everybody has blown it. Everybody has made this this fatal trade and live under this monstrous pressure to do things that are wrong, that are self-destructive. And so in chapter 3, he says that everyone, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The word that is used here in Romans for things that are in error is this word sin. The image that should come to mind would be uh, someone who is hunting and they see the moose and they approach the moose and the moose has presented himself to be shot. The trigger's pulled, but nothing happens. The bullet misses. The animal is missed and the animal runs off. If you understand that word, to miss what is being aimed at, that's what this word sin means. It means to have missed the point, to miss the mark, to err. And what Paul says in chapter 3 is every single one of us have erred. And we fall short of what you were intended to feel, the weight of God's good opinion of you, God's glory. We've all fallen short of that. But in chapter 3, Paul gives the flip side, and he says, But hope is not lost, for we all receive as a gift by God's grace the redemption that becomes, or the, the paying back, or the price being paid by his son, Jesus. Well, that's chapter 3. Chapter 4, Paul says, that's because of your faith, that God uses your faith, and he counts your trust in God as if you had done everything right. Your faith counts as righteousness. And he uses the example of Abraham. Just like Abraham trusted God and his belief counted as if things had been done right, God recognizes your faith. And that faith counts as if you had done everything right. And then chapter 5, Paul talks about how God can do that. Two things have to happen. First, God has to take care of your sin problem. And he does that. By paying the price for your sin in the death of Jesus. The second thing God has to do is then remake you into the kind of person that you were meant to be in the first place. A person who was meant to feel the weight of God's good opinion. To feel his glory. Those two things have to happen. In chapter 5, Paul expresses how much God loves you. He states something that you would say is obvious. You would probably die for a really good person in your life, for somebody who is righteous. But he says very rarely will people die for somebody who's just good out there, but people may die for them. But here's how God demonstrates his own love for you. While we were still sinners, while we were still erring, Christ died for all of us who were ungodly. That's how much God loves you. And then he ends chapter 5 by making a comparison. And he says, God has given us a law 
For some of you, if you are Jewish, that law came in the form of a Torah. It came in the form of a list of laws that were to, to be followed. And the point of that law was to shine a light on all those things in life that cause us to err. But even if you do not have this law, if you are a non-Jewish person, that very law is written on your heart. You know what's right and what's wrong. And you know in your life you have done things that are wrong. But Paul ends chapter 5 by saying, do you realize that where our erring increased, God's grace increases all the more? In other words, you can't out God's ability to take care of your sin problem and his ability to make you right again. The image is that of, well, preparing for s- snowstorms. Your house is probably like mine. If we get one to two inches, we pull out the snow shovels and clear off the driveway. If we get four to five to six inches, we call in the teenagers who are home for Christmas and say, <laughs> everybody out in the... The drive, we've got a lot of work to do, and we pull out the big snow movers. But you know what happens in the city. If we get up to 12 inches, then they have to pull out the big, my neighbors rev up the snow blowers. Some of you have those. You can really throw the snow far out of your yard. But if the snow is even deeper than that, or if the snow keeps coming, they start pulling out these large scrapers that drive through our neighborhood. I realize not as soon as you would like them to arrive, but they make their way to your neighborhood and they clear out the snow. But if the snow is even deeper than that, or if it gets to be more problematic, if you've seen them pull out those front-end loaders where they move and they push the snow. In our neighborhood, they build, we call it the snow volcano in the middle of our neighborhood where they push the snow up high. And if the snow gets even deeper than that and they need to move a lot of snow, I saw for the first time this year, maybe it's been around, but it's that huge front-end loader on the front of which they've hooked a snow blower that goes down the street and it blows snow, not just off the street, it blows it all the way into Canada. You know, I mean, it's a powerful <laughs> snowblower. Well, you get the idea that the deeper the snow, we've got a machine for that, you know, to blow the snow away. Well, if you understand that, that's what Paul's saying about God's grace. That whatever the sin is in your life or in your past, God's grace is bigger and it abounds And it can throw that sin as far away as anything can. And so Paul ends chapter 5 by saying, no matter how much sin you have, God's grace is bigger, which leads to the question, if that's true, then should, in 2024, should we go on sinning so that God's grace can be shown for just how big it is? You hear his question. And your answer to that is? That was Paul's answer, too. No. But you know, he didn't just say no. He said, meganoito. That's the Greek phrase. And meganoito is the strongest possible way to say no in this Greek language in which the letter was first written. So imagine in English, if you wanted to say not just no, but an absolute, strong, unequivocal no. What phrase? Don't say it out loud. But the... The phrase that comes to mind that you would use to tell somebody absolutely, unequivocally, no. The phrases that come to mind there may not be appropriate for our setting here, but you understand how strong that is. If you understand how strong a phrase like that is, you understand how Paul answers this question. Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul says, may genoito, which literally means may it never be born. What he's saying is, may that thought 
never be born into existence. Why? And now here's where Paul says, I want you to put your back to the future, look to the past, and look at the one time in your life when something went absolutely right. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you remember that those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So the image that comes to mind, of course, is a baptism. Behind this wall here is a body of water that looks like an old Jewish mikvah, a bath, in which most of you, at some point in your life, were baptized. You went into that water. You made a confession of your full trust and faith in Christ, and you were lowered under the water. It was a burial. You were placed under the water, and then you were raised up again. And Paul calls to mind that that time, that moment. And he says, those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized, catch this, into his death. And so as we face the past, we look not only at that day we made a decision, but we look through that and see what it all means. And we see the day at which, on which God took care of your sin problem. You were baptized into his death. You can imagine that day when Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, was on a cross outside Jerusalem. And you know what that death was like. You know from what you've read or what you've heard that it's an excruciating way to die. With nails in his wrist, with a crown of thorns pressed into his scalp, with blood on his back, having been whipped made to carry this beam, uh, and then for hours hanging on a cross, struggling for breath. You know the physical side of that. But what was Jesus thinking? Do you know we have some idea of what he was thinking? A few things that he said while he was on the cross. And one of the things that Jesus was doing on the cross that might surprise you is that he was singing. I don't know that he could sing the way we just sang a hymn. It would be very hard to get any breath in or out at the time. But what came to his mind and what came out of his mouth were several psalms. Psalms that he would have sung along with others all of his years growing up and with those disciples. The first psalm is Psalm 22, where he begins by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometime read through Psalm 22, and you'll see the whole song reads like what a person would sing while being on a cross. And then Jesus ends. We're told in Matthew and Mark that he ends with this loud cry, but we're not told what he cried. It's only in Luke, the historian, who went back and found what he cried. And you know what Jesus cried? The very last thing he cried before he gave up his spirit was from Psalm 31, verse 5, where he said, He said, Lord, into your hand I commit my spirit. And then he died. And Paul says, do you realize that on the day you were baptized, you were baptized into that death? Where you experience, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you come up out of that water as one saying, into your hands, I commit my spirit. 
And Paul says it's not just being baptized into his death. You are buried with him. There's an eerie kind of odd thought is that when you're baptized, the stone is sort of rolled away and then you are carried in and you are laid down on that slab right next to Jesus. You are buried with him. The stone is rolled back and the tomb is closed. But he doesn't stop there because Jesus didn't stay dead. Paul says, so that just as Jesus Christ came from the dead and was resurrected, you are raised to walk a new life. And so looking back at the past, we look at that moment in our life when everything was made just right, where we were baptized into his death. And then just as Christ was raised from the dead, we rise, catch this, As you think about a new year, we are raised to walk a new life. And that's where Paul goes on to the next section there to make this argument. And he says, you know, if we've been united with Christ in a death like his, you recognize we are meant to be united with him in a resurrection like his. You are not meant to stay dead. You are meant to be alive and to live for him. And then Paul ends up making this argument where he starts with, you have been united with him. And he ends by saying, so count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ. The argument that he makes is very dense and you have to spend time to really work your way through it. But basically what Paul says is, Jesus died. He was really dead. And when people die, catch this, your version says they are set free from sin. The real word there is, they are made right again from sin or of sin. The the passage there takes you back to the garden when the first human beings reached for that forbidden fruit and make that fatal trade. And they're told, if you eat of this fruit, in that day you will surely die. They didn't die that day, but it started this process of death. In order to pay the price for that sin and every sin, every error that is connected to that, the price is death. And it's not until a person dies that everything is, in Paul's word, made right again. And Paul says, Jesus really died. And as you know, everyone who dies settles the price for sin. But Jesus' death was different because he, in his death, took on the sins of the entire world. He was buried, and all the sins of the world were buried with him. So that when God raised Jesus from the dead, what came back was not the man of sin, was not the human being of sin. That price was already paid. From now on, death has no mastery over Jesus. Sin cannot touch him. Death has no say over him. And Paul makes this point. He says, that's exactly what you signed up for. When you chose to follow Christ, you joined him. You were united with him in his death, a death like his, so that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, you rise no longer under any obligation to serve as a slave of that monstrous pressure to do things wrong. It's no longer there. So count yourselves, just like Jesus, dead to sin, but alive to God. Which then brings us to the point, really, of today's message, is the the final passage there, where he says two things. 
Paul says, as you go into this next year, make this your resolution. There's a do not and a do. Did you catch that? The do not is because you have died with Christ and been risen to this new life, do not present the members of your body as instruments of doing things that are not right. Now, what are these members of our body? There's not a special word for this. It means what you think it means. You have member, Your body is made up of parts. <laughs> you have hands. You have feet. You have eyes. You have ears. You have a brain. And Paul says, do not present these parts of your body to sin, to do things that are wrong and harmful and cause evil in the world. That's the do not. Instead, as people who have been raised with Christ, you present your body, catch the word here, and the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness, of God making things right again in this world. What he says is that you get to be one of the implements in God's hands, and you present the parts of your body to be used by him. The image is that of a, of a surgeon who, uh, in the middle of surgery, has instruments, and he raises his hand. Stephen, I'm looking at you. He raises his hand and asks for the implement that's needed, and immediately that instrument is slapped in the hand to be applied to a body to either cut or suture or repair. And that's what God does. Mark, thanks for being here today. My friend Mark Delaney is here today. Mark is, a, is a, not just a mechanic, he is a master mechanic and has been for years. What was it, 25 years ago or so, we were sitting together at Kaladi talking, and I was preparing at that time to be a physician. Mark was already at that time a master mechanic. And he says, Bob, you've got it easy. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah. He says, as a physician, you only have to worry about one make and two models. My company sends me a new model every year, and I have to learn how to repair it. (laughs) And some of you are good with your hands. You're mechanics like that, and you know what it means to have just the right tool to repair just the right item, and how important that is to have the right tool. And that's what Paul says you are. You offer yourself as an instrument of doing what is right, where God, who comes into Anchorage in this place and time. And in order to apply the repair to whatever needs to be done in our community, in our society, even in our whole world, and he looks at what needs to be done and he reaches for just the right tool. But instead of calling for a particular instrument or the name of a tool, he calls out your name and he reaches into that toolbox and he shifts through until he finds you and your hands or your voice or your feet or your brain. And he applies you exactly where that needs to be applied in our place and time to, to make the world right again. Paul says, as you go into this next year, do not give yourself to evil or the parts of your body doing things wrong. He says, like anyone understands, look at the past. Look at the one time in your life where everything has been just right You who died with him but have now been raised with Christ. You, just like him, are dead to sin, but you're alive to Christ. You live for God. Present yourself as an instrument in the hands of God. On our wall at home, there's a, a plaque that I ended up carving 
for Ada, one of our daughters, she asked one Christmas, she said, would you just make me something? And so I went and I found a a favorite quote of ours, and we carved this into a piece of wood. It now hangs in one of the rooms of our house. The quote comes from Blaise Pascal. Pascal lived in the same time as Descartes. This is back in the 1600s. He was a mathematician and philosopher and theologian and kind of a lot of things. But when he was thinking about this passage, or perhaps this very passage, he wrote this. He said, in your life, Do little things as though they were great and big, because it is Jesus Christ who does them in us. And do the greatest things as though they were little and easy, because we do them with his unlimited power. Well, may God bless the reading of his word, and may he bless you this week and this year as you and I seek to put what we've read here into practice in our day and time. I recognize that for many of you, uh, as you look over this next year, uh, there will be ways in which you know this needs to be put into practice. And may you this year learn to imitate Christ in your day-to-day life as you are an instrument in the hands of God. May you learn also to imitate his prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross when you lie down tonight not knowing whether or not your rest will be restorative or restless. Learn to pray into your hands, Lord. I commit my spirit. When you wake up in the morning, not knowing what the day holds, learn to pray into your hand. I commit my spirit. For those of you who are parents and are wondering, how am I going to raise my kids? What's this year going to be like for them? Learn to pray into your hands, Lord. I commit my spirit. For those of you who are children and you wonder, what what am I growing to be? Learn in your own prayers each day to say, as Jesus did, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Those of you who are employees and wonder, what's this year going to be like for our business, for my employer, for my work? Learn to pray. Lord, into your hands, I commit my spirit. For those of you who are teachers and wonder, how are you going to instruct and guide these students put under your care? Learn each morning to pray, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. For those of you who are health care workers and will be taking care of God's precious image in all its different forms, wondering what is the right thing to do, learn to pray, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. For those of you who are public servants and this year very well may put yourself in harm's way, In order to protect those who are vulnerable, learn to pray. Into your hands, I commit my my spirit. For those of you who are husbands or wives and you pray for and long for a relationship that is good and growing, learn to pray together. Into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. And for those of you who are leaders of the church here, who are servants of the church, who are followers of Christ in this place and time. Learn to pray into your hands. I commit my spirit. And then I fully recognize that in a group like this, some of you are still wondering if this is worth signing up for. Is Jesus worth following? Notice that Jesus will not demand anything. You're not being asked here to believe a book or believe a certain doctrine. You're being invited into a relationship with a person. And Jesus will first earn your trust. 
Let him do that. But for those of you who are still deciding, should I make this decision to follow him? I hope that in what you've heard from even this passage allows you to look back over your own life and say, what in my life equals the power of a God who can raise a person from the dead? And then realize what's being offered is that very same power to make things right in your life, too. So wherever this passage ends up landing for you, my prayer is that you find a way to put it into practice as we seek to follow the Lord. If that touches you in any way and you uh, would request prayers or would like today to sign up and follow Christ and be baptized as we just read in this passage, today's the day for that. Let's think about those things and pray for each other as we stand now and sing.